Hello, this is Ever Wonder from the California Science Center. I'm Perry Roth Johnson. Today on the show, we are starting a new series on robots. We've seen some pretty amazing things in robotics in just the past few years. Maybe you've seen some videos of humanoid robots that can do backflips, or robot hummingbirds that can hover in midair. And these examples are just the tip of the iceberg. So for the next few episodes, we're going to talk to some of the engineers who design these robots and learn more about what's happening in the field today and what might come in the future. Now, a video of a single backflipping robot is pretty amazing. But what if you could get a whole team of robots, hundreds or even thousands of robots to cooperate with each other? Do you ever wonder what would happen if robots worked together? Kirsten Peterson is a roboticist and professor of electrical and computer engineering at Cornell University. And in her lab, she builds cooperative teams of robots called robot swarms that are inspired by insects like ants, termites, and bees. We talked about the challenges of getting huge numbers of robots to communicate with each other and how studying nature can offer some solutions. It was a fascinating conversation. Check it out. Professor Kirsten Peterson, you are a roboticist and a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Cornell University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So uh, your work involves getting robots to work together, often in in quite large numbers. Um, But but before we dig into your work, I want to just get a sense of the state of the art now. So do we already have robots working together in our society, like in some business sectors? Like where are we now? Ah, well, the most obvious example out there is uh, Amazon Robotics. Right? So in mm-hmm. Amazon Robotics, the biggest warehouses right now have uh, many thousands of robots working together to shuffle packages around very efficiently in warehouses uh, in order to very quickly get them packaged and sent to you with a very few days delay. I'm looking at a picture right now, and it's like this kind of souped-up orange Roomba-almost-looking device. It's like kind of squat, rounded square. Simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it's not like um, at a particular uh, loading dock that you might see at, at at a business or a warehouse where someone has to come in with a forklift or a pallet jack from the size. This thing just drives right under, doesn't stick out at all, and it lifts the whole thing up and then it drives around the warehouse. Is that how it works? Yep, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But you know, there's like a, a huge planning problem there, right? Like you have these thousands of robots and you need to figure out where all of them go. And one thing is figuring it out. You would probably pre-compute that, plan that out. Um, but, you know, with all robots, there are practical things that happen. One shelf can topple over, maybe something spills out, maybe one robot runs out of battery or something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And so planning collision avoidance for all of these robots and efficient navigation is, is very interesting. Yeah, tricky problem. So I think that's a nice segue into, like, what is your vision for the future of robots? Uh, I know you work on swarms. Uh, like, how is your research a little different than Amazon's approach, or like, how are you trying to move that that work forward? So, I think first of all, I think you know, single robot systems are amazing, and there's so many fantastic examples out there. Uh, but I work on a sort of a special subset of that problem, which is what can we do if we didn't have one or ten or a hundred? What if we had a thousand or ten thousand? Mm. Um, and so. You know, then, then, the, then everything changes a little bit, right? So if I had 10,000 or 100,000 robots, um, you know, there's opportunities there, right? So every single robot realistically would have to be much, much simpler and much, much cheaper because otherwise you couldn't support that biggest swarm. Um, 
But if you have many robots, they could potentially work together. They could cover really large areas. They could do things that single robots just couldn't do. And you might end up with a really robust system where even if some of them fail or half of them fail, right, the rest sort of reorganize um, and still take on challenges. So there are opportunities in swarms where we can apply them to applications that just don't currently merit robot systems. That, that's crazy to think like 10,000 or 100,000 robots working together. Uh, can you give me some examples of like these things that, you know, maybe are over a big area that you might want to swarm to tackle? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, say the the Deep Horizon oil, oil spill, right? If if I wanted to try to contain a massive oil spill, it just makes sense to have a lot of simple robots try to collaborate on containing that oil spill. If I needed to uh, search out a big earthquake for victims, um, a big earthquake site, right? You want coverage, and that's really something many robots can give you. Every single robot doesn't necessarily have to be really complicated, but they need to span a large area. Um, you can also imagine if you're trying to build a really big building that has some really big spars in there, right? You need many robots to collaborate on carrying these big unwieldy things because a single robot would just have a hard time doing that. Um, but you can also imagine that you're sending your robots out to uh, do a task that we just don't know a lot about. And so chances are that something is going to fail. And you don't want just, you know, one wheel, to take the uh, example from the Mars rover, right? One wheel getting stuck in sand to, to damage the entire robot. You want just that part to fall off and then the rest should continue. Right. Yeah. That, that's like so heartbreaking when you spend all that time and money <laughs> <Yeah>. sending <laughs> your robot to Mars and <laughs> it breaks. <laughs> I want to go back uh, to the, the Amazon warehouse example for a second. Like, um, there's this notion in, in science fiction, people like Star Trek, of the Borg, where there's like this centralized entity that communicates with the rest of the, the entities in the, the Borg collective. Like, are the Amazon warehouse robots, would it be fair to say, they're kind of like the Borg? There's like a, a central thing talking to all of these robots picking up products? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for the record, I'm not from Amazon Robotics, right? <laughs> I'm sort of talking from what I, I hear from their engineers. Um, Sure. They are mostly centralized, and for, I think, up till they hit around 2,000 robots, that's what they did. They had a fully centralized control. Um, but I think even them uh, now, as they, they keep pushing that barrier, have hit a limit where they're actually starting to look into more distributed control. What does that mean to have distributed control? Like, is it more like a hive of bees, like where each bee can think That's exactly right. Own? Yeah, so, so many people, right, they think of a hive of bees as like, well, there's a queen, and she kind of tells them what to do, but that's obviously yeah. not true. Uh, every not, single yeah. bee has some kind of pre-programmed, uh, you know, desire, intelligence, and they use a lot of cues about what they see in the collective, and then they figure out what to do. And so there's a lot of these little emergent collaborations happening, and that somehow gives rise to this full collaborative behavior, um, which is incredibly robust and incredibly efficient and incredibly adaptable. Um, and so that's the kind of kind of methods we're looking into, and um, we're especially interested in this notion of like, if I have a robot and mm -hmm. it doesn't have the ability or it doesn't want to communicate with everyone else in the collective because that's a large communication overhead. What how what other ways can we use to make everyone have this emergent behavior? And it mm -hmm. turns out if you have physical robots and you're willing to implement them, well then they have the physical substrate that they're operating on. And they can use that substrate and modifications in that substrate to try to coordinate. So they're essentially using their environment as sort of a shared database. Of yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about, there was this project, uh, you and your colleagues became 
pretty famous for, I think it was back in 2014, where you had a robot collective uh, or swarm called termies, right? It was like they were they were kind of modeled after termites, and they, they... right, right, right. So uh, these are these are not uh, North American termites, for the record. These are uh, okay. southern <laughs> some southern hemisphere termites that build very big mounds out of mud. Um, if you haven't seen them yet. You should absolutely look them up. They're, they're quite amazing. Uh, so you can sort of think of it as like this: the size of a termite compared to the size of one of the big mounds is similar to or bigger than a person compared to the size of the Eiffel Tower. So these are some incredibly (laughs) complex uh, and big structures. Um, What we were trying to get at there was uh, one of the big problems right now, which is in construction. So the future of construction, uh, we really need to automate more things. um, It's it's a big source of of risk for workers. Um, There's a lot of energy wasted there. There's a lot of people that don't have adequate homes. And so we're trying to look into how could many robots work together to build structures. Um, and so we took inspiration from these termites, millions of which can come together to build these big, big mounds. Millions? Millions, yes. So, wow. so, uh, so the idea was that, again, you don't actually need a centralized controller. And you don't actually need robots that are super capable. Because what you have here is the opportunity to, um, you know the structure that you want to build up front, right? So mm-hmm. you can sort of plan around that and try to figure out, okay, which are actions that we can uh, execute in parallel and which are ac- actions that have to execute sequentially uh, such that we still end up building a structure, right? And if you don't do that, then you can end up with problems where, like, one robot builds a tower that no other robots can come up to, right, because they just don't have the kind of capabilities necessary. Or another robot ends up building all these gaps that you can't really fill in later. So there needs to be some rules, but not many rules. So if you understand the hardware you're building, you can pre-plan a lot of these things. Now, once you have this pre-plan, you can give that to the robots, and then because the robots are building and literally modifying the environment, they can use the modifications to try to guide what other robots should be doing. So here, the example is, I just place a brick, but I don't need to tell you that I placed that brick. Right? It's enough that at some point later on, you come by and you see that that brick was placed, and that tells you, because of this pre-plan we have, whether or not you should add a brick next to it. Um, and so this is what I mean when I say that we're sort of leveraging the environment as a shared database. We're literally modifying the environment and that tells other robots that come by later on what they should do. Got it. So is that the same kind of behavior you saw in those uh, termites in the, in the southern hemisphere and, and other insects? Yeah, so it's a concept called stigmergy in biology, and it's quite well known um, that, that many, many social insects, so insects that, that work together in large colonies, will actually alter their environment by adding pheromone or by adding little physical artifacts like little dollops of mud like the termites do. Mm-hmm. And that prompts other termites to do other things um, or specific things. So, again, the, the sort of behavior emerges because they're literally shaping the environment to fit their own purposes. Mm-hmm. So, so like, the, the image I have in my mind is, like, when I haven't cleaned the kitchen and a line of ants comes out, you know, to get, get the food. But... If you're kind of a jerk and you put your finger in the middle of the line, then sometimes the ants get confused. So, like, they're picking up on the cues, the pheromones that other ants have left on the counter so that they know how to get to the food. Yeah, and that's exactly is that, right. Is that an example of, like, social behavior in insects? That's, that's a great example, right? And what's super cool about them is that when you place your finger there and you don't take it away, the ants will start exploring, right? And so mm-hmm. when one ant then finds the food again, they trace their steps back and lay pheromone as they go back. And so now, if another ant comes by and says, oh, well, there's a pheromone trail here, 
with some probability, I'm going to, with some chance, I'm going to pick that trail and I'm going to move along it and then also find something that they're going to reinforce that trail. And so the trail reforms and is constantly adaptable to, to perturbations like you putting your finger on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you're getting your inspiration from these, we're calling them social insects. Um, how, how do you study them? Like, do you have ant colonies in your lab? Are you going outside and getting dirty to observe them? And then you come back in your lab to build something? Or do you collaborate with other people to study the bugs? Like, like what's your approach? Uh, yeah, that's, that's actually exactly what we do. Uh, the first year in my lab, we, uh, we bought a shovel and we went out uh, with some biologists, field biologists, and we got a bunch of uh, ant colonies and we stuck them in the lab. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, joking. <laughs> no, that's, that's actually what we've done. Um, Later on, we have uh, transitioned to honeybees because uh, Cornell University, where I am, has a, a great track record of honeybees, and they're easy to keep, and we kind of know how to, to deal with them, and they're, um, turns out, very, very important for agriculture because they're pollinators. Um, but, you know, we're not biologists. Uh, we love to study them because they are, at the end of the day, our inspiration. But what we really are, um, you know, we're engineers that are capable of building tools that the biologists don't necessarily have access to. So we work with the biologists to try to figure out what kind of tools they need so that they can study them better, right? And our end goal is that whatever insights they then come up with, with those tools, we can use um, to try to program our robots better. Hmm. So like what, what kind of tools are you building for the, the entomologists? Uh, a lot of visual trackers, a lot of, uh, you know, detecting when honeybees go in and out of their colonies. Uh, mm-hmm. We're trying to uh, build little uh, backpacks that we can stick onto the bees to actually report where they fly. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Honeybee backpacks. So that's a collaboration with one of my colleagues, Al Molner. Um, and we have, we have very good results so far, so we're quite excited. Um, so we're sort of starting to enter... A field where you can almost think of swarms as these biohybrid things where, like, we don't just try to operate around what is already going on um, in the field. We're actually trying to incorporate knowledge on what is going on in the field with all the insects that are there. And then just sort of applying robots to to uh, fill out the gaps where the insects aren't, for example, um, pollinating enough. Hmm. Are, are there any challenges you run into to, like, trying to work across fields? I I know that's more and more common these days, um, but at least my impression in engineering, it's it's still a little a little unusual to to force yourself to like have to learn you know two different fields and be able to cross talk between them. <laughs> yeah, definitely, there are some barriers to break down. Uh, I think mostly it's a mental barrier, right? Like, so every time you take something new on, you're like, oh my god, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is gonna go well. Uh, but I think, um, as we said, more and more people are starting to appreciate. Uh, all the great things that can come from interdisciplinary research, but also more and more people are starting to appreciate uh, work that comes out of it, you know, for the hard work that it is and for the the ingenuity that goes into actually completing things that take interdisciplinary um, work. And so uh, it takes a little bit of zeal, uh, a little bit of backbone, but if you're willing to fail a bunch and try a bunch, um, there's there's some great things to be uh, to be discovered. I have to ask you about some of these things that have popped up in in pop culture, uh, like the Roe B episode in, in Black Mirror. Uh, in like your experience, what what are people usually most worried about when you you know present your work? And there's these kind of dystopian pictures in pop culture. Like, and what do you wish people knew or understood better? Um, it's a great question. Um, so I think most people they see my work and they're like, 
Big Hero 6, right? So I do soft robots, I do sword robots, it kind of all fits in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's not a bad movie to compare it to, right? So people are worried that the robots turn evil and take over. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, actually I think movies generally today do a pretty good ca- job of capturing the fact that it's not that the robots turn evil, it's that evil people inflict um, whatever intentions they have onto them. Mm. <laughs> I don't think any roboticist sets out to make a robot that, you know, in any way steals or, or, or harms human race, right? All roboticists uh, are trying to do things that, that better the world. I think the biggest uh, sort of realistic thing that people worry about is, sure, do, are robots going to turn evil? And I think um, anyone who's ever worked with a robot knows that they're pretty far from that. If they take over the world one day, I think my, my job is done. Then we've created a really good robot, uh, but I don't think we're going to get to that. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest problem is, um, are they going to take over our jobs? Right. So people are worried that we're just, we're just, we're trying to get rid of agricultural workers. We're trying to get rid of construction workers. And that's not the case at all, right? We're trying to take away the things that are really hard or dangerous or, or dull or things that people just can't do today. Those are the things we're trying to um, to alleviate. Just before we wrap up, uh, are there any other stories you'd like to share? Uh, what else do you want people to know? Mm-hmm. So we kind of jump from topic to topic. In my lab, we do a lot of different things. Um, you know, we, 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 we work with these swarms, but it's swarms applied to soft robots for exploration, but it's also swarms applied to agriculture um, and anything else you can really imagine. Um, so that's why we covered all of these different topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think people should appreciate, if they can, if you at all have the opportunity to go into research, it's a super exciting thing to do um, because you get to combine these drastically different fields um, you know, into one thing that you think will, will really change the world. Um, and I think it's you know, engineering, robotics, um, research, some of these areas are places where you really actually, you know, they enable you to actually do something something pretty hardcore. Awesome. So where can people follow you online and, and find your work, uh, Professor Peterson? Uh, so we have a web- website. Uh, it's called CEI. It stands for Collective Embodied Intelligence. So cei.ece.cornell.edu. Awesome. Well, Professor Peterson, uh, it's been amazing talking to you, uh, learning how robots can work together, especially like thousands of robots. I'm still kind of reeling, you know, thinking how that might work. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and, and sharing your work with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show, and thanks for listening. Until next time, keep wondering. Ever Wonder from the California Science Center is produced by me, Perry Roth Johnson, along with Jennifer Castillo. Liz Roth Johnson is our editor. Theme music provided by Michael Nicholas and Pond 5. We'll drop new episodes every other Wednesday. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review or tell a friend about it. Now, our doors may be closed, but our mission to inspire science learning in everyone continues. We're working hard to provide free educational resources online while maintaining essential operations like on-site animal care and preparing for our reopening to the public. Join our mission by making a gift at californiasciencecenter.org support.